people are doing in their transition to this new uh, position. Now, if you would please turn with me to Acts 10, 34 to 38. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the Lord's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Jonathan. One of the really valuable skills that our pastoral residents will learn uh, over the course of the next two and a half years is how to stand people well and seat people. <laughs> hey, I did it to Ben. I, got, I, can't, I can't not do it to you. Uh, for the record, one time I, one of, I did a wedding where I had everybody stand and I forgot to seat them and they stood the whole wedding. So you're not alone, but that was a mistake that you make once. It is now in my notes. Please be seated. All right, so if you were here two weeks ago, you, uh, you, you, your head is in Acts chapter 10. We took a break last week, uh, obviously for our 30th. We're going to back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is a very important uh, chapter in the Bible. My hope is by the end of this, you will understand why. Last, the first part of Acts chapter 10, we've really focused on Peter. Peter's transition, he's becoming less Jewish. He's doing things a good Jew would never do. He's staying with a tanner who is unclean because tanners handle unclean animals. He's now eating unclean foods thanks to a vision from God. And he learns that people are being sent from uh, this Roman centurion. That's a soldier who oversees about 100 soldiers. People are being sent to Peter to go get him because the, the Roman centurion Cornelius has had a vision. And in this vision, the, so centur, um, Cornelius the centurion, he is, he's a God-fearer. He has some affinity to the Jewish faith, but he's not a Jew. He's praying to God, and God says, go find Simon, Peter, over in Joppa. Have him come to you, and he will tell you what it is you need to know. So this is a big deal, because this, as 
as Jesus said, and then as Luke said in Acts chapter 1-8, this is the moment that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. This is the moment that the gospel ceases to be uh, a a Jewish Israeli thing and it begins to make its journey throughout the whole Roman Empire and then ultimately the world. This passage uh, changes everything because if you remember the, the first verse of our passage was the last verse last time where Peter realizes he has this breakthrough about Christianity. He's putting all of Jesus's teachings together and he realizes God has God shows no partiality. He doesn't favor one nation or one culture anymore. Cornelius does not have to become a Jew to become a Christian. All these things are clicking in Peter's mind. And this is the, one of those weird passages where I'm, I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon. This is Peter's sermon, and I've got to preach about Peter's preaching. But as I found out in the first service, it's kind of fun to do this. So, so Peter's arriving to Cornelius. Cornelius has this big crowd that has been assembled. Uh, Cornelius bows to worship Peter. Peter says, stop, I'm, I'm, I'm a man just like you. And then Peter's task is to summarize the most important parts of the last three years with Jesus. I mean, and, and the, the linguistic scholars, which I am not, have pointed out, what he says is a little choppy, so probably he's having to do it in Greek, not in, uh, in Aramaic or Hebrew that would have been a little more comfortable. But so in Greek, he's having to go in front of these soldiers, these Gentiles, to communicate the most important part of the faith that he has learned over the past three years. So for me, I, I read this, I understand what's going on, and it makes me really want to pay attention. This is what Peter chooses to tell the first Gentile converts. And before we look at what he does say, it is interesting to note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you need to behave differently. You need to listen to different music. You need to dress differently. You need to hang around with different people. You need to change your sexual habits or the ways that you vote. He doesn't say what you need to know are doctrines like election and ecclesiology and, and polity. And not that those things aren't important, and not that I don't have strong opinions on those things, but they're just not in the most important summary that Peter can think to give about the Christian faith. I have a friend named Pat Morley who started Man in the Mirror Ministries. Many of you, if you've been in Orlando for some time, you're familiar with Man in the Mirror. It's a global men's ministry. And I've heard him say numerous times that we aren't here to change people's behavior. We are here to show them Jesus. And we let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does after that. And so this passage, I think, is a great illustration of Peter showing these people Jesus. And then we get to see the Holy Spirit work after that. It really is a neat passage. So when we look at Peter's, uh, Peter's sermon here, what Peter is effectively doing is showing them three things, which I, I want to point out because that's not just like the Baptist in me. This is what the apostles did. They had three points. And so I have three points. But Jesus, uh, Peter's three points are simple. He wants them to hear about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. That, that's Peter's sermon here. So first... The life of Jesus. These are verses 36 through 39. Peter begins by telling them about what he calls the word, the message that has been sent to Israel, to first to Israel by God, and that message is the good news of peace. And this isn't talking about world peace or peace in the Middle East, which actually is the end of all these things. What he's talking about is peace with God. And in the ancient culture, that wouldn't have been a weird thing to talk about because they had a deep understanding that we are not right with God. Things are not going well with God. We've got to do something to get right with God. And, and in the ancient world, there were lots of weird things, as is today, that we create to be right with God. 
but they understood that in their natural state, they are not right with God. Paul says that all of us have gone astray. All have rebelled because all of us have declared ourselves to be a type of God because we've, we've declared to the world through our actions that I want to live the way I want to live. And when we say that, we're saying, I'm my own God. And when that happens, the Bible tells us when we rebel and decide we're our own gods, the result is an internal punishment which is where I lose about everybody in, in this modern world. Like, I mean, I, you talk about internal condemnation, eternal punishment, and people will say things like, that's just so archaic. Well, just because it's been around for a long time doesn't mean that it's wrong or untrue. And one of the ways that I, I have an illustration that I, that I usually try and give to explain the, the rationality between rebelling against God and eternal condemnation, and I realized <laughs> that it was a little flawed. Uh, about a month and a half ago, I was speaking to, let's just say, a more conservative setting. And it was, it was about a thousand people. And I was trying to make the point that the more important the person is who you offend, the greater the punishment. That just makes sense. And so if you hit me, you punch me, you'll be arrested, I promise, but you'll sleep in your own bed tonight because I'm not that important. But if you punch the governor in the face, you're gonna see prison time. But then I said, if you can manage to make your way to the president and punch him, and the crowd erupted in cheering, and I was like, this is not what, I, what I'm meaning. I'm not trying to get political. And no one should be cheering, punching the president. But in that moment, I realized this is a perfect picture of your natural state, all of our natural state, our rebellion against God. We cheer in our hearts the rebellion against God unless God comes and does something. That's what we're doing. But through Jesus, who is Lord of all, peace is proclaimed. Because when we offend and rebel against the holy, eternal creator of the universe, it makes perfect sense that the result is eternal condemnation and punishment. But Jesus is bringing the good news of peace with God. And peace isn't just proclaimed by Jesus. What Peter is saying is peace is accomplished through Jesus. In verse 37, Peter says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea. So this is really interesting. He's, he's in, in front of these Roman soldiers down by the sea, and he's saying, you all know what happened. You know what happened. There's this assumption. Everybody knows what Jesus did. There's no corner of this region where people don't know everything that Jesus did. I mean, to, to go and find somebody who had never heard of this Jesus and know most of what he did apparently would be like finding somebody who didn't know that there was a pandemic going on right now. I mean, important news travels, and this is what's happening. He's saying, you yourselves, you know what's happened. And then Peter starts by telling them the things that they've already heard. And he starts with Jesus' baptism, which is really important and really easy to skip over. Like we knew Jesus was baptized. But Peter's starting there for a reason. All four Gospels start with Jesus' baptism for a reason. Two really important things are accomplished by starting with Jesus' baptism. You're communicating important things. The first and the primary thing that you're communicating is that Jesus is the anointed one and it was confirmed by God at this moment. So you may remember Jesus is going to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John's really hesitant. And he, he thinks that Jesus should be baptizing him, not the other way around. But I want to pick up in Matthew's account. Matthew says, Then he, John the Baptist, consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So I imagine this booming voice, God the Father, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, God the Father is confirming this anointing of Jesus. And you see this dove-like spirit resting on Jesus. John sees this. And it's God the Spirit confirming that this is Jesus. That he is the anointed one. He says, you've heard how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Everybody's heard this. He's not telling them something new. You've heard this. Peter's doing a couple things, but he's reinforcing the fact that Jesus' life was different. He was this anointed one. And not only did he do some good things, he only ever did good things. Jesus never messed up. The apostle Paul, in, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he calls Jesus the man who knew no sin. So that's important. Not only was he anointed by God and he honored God in every single way that he could with his life, which no human had ever done before, but Peter doesn't stop there. Peter says not only was he anointed by God and honoring him in every way, he also displayed authority over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. He displayed authority over the storms and the waves. He walked on water, but then you get to the spiritual realm and Peter says he freed those who were oppressed by Satan. You know, he's freeing the spiritually oppressed. He's doing all these things. No one else in their earthly life have ever done any of these things. And here's Jesus doing all of these things. But Peter says, you Cornelius, you already know this. You already know all this. Peter says, what I'm here to do is to tell you that it's true. I saw it. We saw it. Lots of us saw it. We've seen this thing. Everything you've heard, Cornelius, and I know you've heard all of it, it's true. And then there's a second aspect that's really important to understand about Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, he is communicating to the world his desire to identify with us. So Jesus coming down and taking on flesh, he's identifying with us. And he wants to do so in every way. So some of it is going to mean Jew, taking, doing these Jewish customs, like being baptized in this, in this way. But ultimately, what he's foreshadowing is he is going to identify with us in all our trials and all our temptations and all our pain. And because he's doing this, I mean, we see Jesus' deity in what Peter is saying, but he's emphasizing this humanity that, that Jesus had. He, he's emphasizing his humanity. If Jesus weren't fully human, enduring all the trials and temptations that we face, yet without sin, he could never be a viable substitute for us. But because he really did live a full life, and he really was tempted in every way, and he remained without sin, this is why the author of Hebrews can say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus' life. Everything you've heard, Cornelius, is true. I saw it. And now let me tell you about his death. Half of a verse, the second half of verse 39 they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This perfect Jesus. 
in spite of the fact that he lived a perfect life, in spite of the fact that he continually put others first, in spite of the fact that he healed people and fed people and freed people from all kinds of oppression. They killed him. And I imagine Cornelius might be thinking something like, but but clearly from from Jesus' baptism, we know he was anointed and confirmed by God. How can they kill him? And the answer is because he was anointed and confirmed as the anointed by God. The Pharisees, I mean, Jesus had a credible, um, he made a credible profession to be God himself. And this is what sent the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes all into a panic. And they did everything they could do to try to prevent people from following Jesus. They argued with him in public. That did not go well at all. They challenged him in private. That didn't go well. They even tried to spread lies about Jesus and none of it was working. People were still putting their trust in him. They were still following him. He was gaining an audience. So they did the only thing they knew to do. They crucified him. They used their legal recourse that they had because they were the religious elite and they had him killed, hung on a tree. And that's the day we call Good Friday, which sounds kind of weird if you, if you hear that for the first time. I remember the first time I, I, I really looked at this passage. You know, the first thought, like, well, I say this passage, what this passage is pointing at, the, the death of Jesus. It was about 20 years ago, which makes me feel old, but I remember it that well. And I remember thinking, I'm sure glad that I wasn't one of those people who killed Jesus. <laughs> that, that would be bad. It'd be bad for them. And I started to realize that the reason that I thought that was because I didn't understand what was going on on the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he went there to pay the penalty for all the sins of his people. On the cross, he did that by receiving God's wrath that we deserve, that eternal condemnation that we deserve. He received it, not just for a few people, but for all of his people. You know, there's this, there's this period where the, the sun goes dark while he's on the cross. I don't know this for sure, but I, I, in my mind, I have it. That is the moment that he's receiving the full wrath of God in our place. And this is why he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God had forsaken him. He was sending the wrath that we deserve onto Jesus. And when I realized this, I understood that this is how peace is restored. And that Jesus didn't die for his friends, he died for his enemies, and I was one of those. And because of that, I was one of the people that did send Jesus to the cross. And so are you. You can't have peace with God unless you realize that it is your sin that sent Jesus to the cross, and on that cross, your sin was fully dealt with. I don't want to say that again. You can't have peace with God unless you realize that it is your sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And on that cross, your sin was fully dealt with. That's this message of good news, of peace. And that's why we call that Friday good. Because on that day, what the Pharisees meant for evil, what the Sadducees meant for evil, what the scribes meant for evil, the Pharisees meant for evil, and what Satan himself meant for evil, God used for good. Because the murder of the only truly good person that has ever walked this earth became the only true acceptable sacrifice for the saving of his people so that we could have peace. The prophet Isaiah says, by his wounds we are healed. This is what he's prophesying. 
And in so doing, Jesus defines what love looks like. There's one pastor, I appreciate it, the way he said it. He said, Jesus' death wasn't just an act of love, but it actually defines love. This is why John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for us, permanently defining what love should look like between us. So how are we doing? Are we putting ourselves before others or are we putting ourselves first? Are we, are we believing the best before we start gossiping about people? Are we building people up? Are we breaking them down? Are we doing unto others what we would want them to do unto ourselves? That involves giving up our rights and our privileges and our comforts so that others can be blessed. And if we're not loving people in that kind of a way, there's a deficiency in our understanding of Jesus' love for us. And if there's a deficiency in our understanding of Jesus' love for us, then we need to run to Jesus. And we need to understand the way that he loves us by giving of himself. So Jesus lived. They killed him by hanging him on this tree, but that doesn't end the story. Peter finishes his sermon by telling them that he didn't stay dead, that God rose him up. And we see this in verses 40 through 43. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Jesus did not stay dead. He rose. He has this glorified, resurrected body, what Paul calls the first fruits of all of us who believe in him. And in the off chance that you're not a farmer, first fruits is simple. It means the first fruits that come in the harvest are going to be an indicator of what is to follow. The, the, the first fruits are not going to be really different than the rest of the crop. So if the, the first grapes are bad, the wine's going to be bad. If the first grapes are good, the wine's going to be good. If the first olives are plentiful, the harvest is going to pl be plentiful. And in the same kind of way, Jesus's resurrected body is a first fruit for all of us who believe in him. So what can we observe about Jesus' resurrected body? Well, first, he's not dead. He's resurrected and has a body. That, that's pretty significant. That will be true of all of us. And, and some of the things about Jesus' resurrected body are, have continuity with his earthly body. They, they saw that this is Jesus. I mean, sometimes people had, had trouble getting there for a moment. But everybody who saw Jesus was able to say, yeah, that's you. That's I recognize you now. And, you know, he, you were able to touch him. He wasn't Casper the ghost. He had, a, he had a, a body you could touch. He was eating and he was drinking with them. But then there were other aspects where his body did, was different than his earthly body. He was doing some pretty cool stuff. He was walking through walls. He was appearing and disappearing. At the ascension, he, he rose. So I, I really am holding on to it. We will be able to fly in our resurrected bodies. He's the first fruit. But then in verse 42 comes the bombshell. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. The, the Old Testament, they're pointing to Jesus. That everyone who believes, this is the bombshell, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Did you hear that? Everyone. I mean, everybody in that room, both Jew and Gentile, would have would have heard this they would have noticed it it would have struck like a thunderbolt in that room because the jews did not care about everyone this message was for the jews if you wanted to know that god you became jewish but this was not for everyone 
And the Jews who would have heard this either in that setting or throughout the next few centuries would have said, no, this is not for everyone unless they want to come be like us. But remember, God has said, Peter has said, now God shows no partiality. He doesn't, he doesn't hold one nation or one culture above the rest of them. This thing is for everyone. And this is the moment. This is the moment that everything changes in the course of our faith. This is the moment. You remember, he says, this is he whom the prophets talked about. Abraham was told he would have a descendant. And through that descendant, generations later, the nations would be blessed. Jesus is that descendant. And this is the moment the gospel goes to the Gentiles and the nations are receiving this blessing that had been foretold so long ago. So these Gentiles, they aren't made Jews so that they could be Christian. They just are made Christian because of their belief in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so Luke then in verse 44 writes, while Peter was still saying these things. So imagine the middle of the sermon. While he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I mean, is he still talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection the Holy Spirit fills these people. They are led into the kingdom of heaven. And think about in that moment, while he was still saying these things, we know what these things are, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What's not being told to these people? And they're already being allowed into the kingdom. They're, they're, they're not being told they need to become culturally Jewish. They're not being told that they need to change their sexual ethic or their, their church membership. They're not being, being taught on ecclesiology or polity. Are these things important down the road? Yes, but the key is down the road. In this moment, Peter is giving them what they need most to be a Christian and for there to be a road to walk on. He's giving them Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Then comes everything else. I just love this thought as he was still preaching. Like this thing happens that Peter could never make happen. Years ago, I got to share the gospel with a college student who was a, a lineman for an SC, a starting lineman for an SEC school. And things weren't going well for him. He had a terrible attitude. He was about ready to get kicked off the team. And so we sat down in a Starbucks, which is like just so not, he and I just, it just, the whole thing looked awkward. And I shared the gospel with him. And he, 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 he said, I, I, he indicated, I want this. I want Jesus. I want I want to have this kind of life. And I just said, well, then you need to talk to God. You need to talk to God. You need to pray for faith. You need to commit your, your life on your own to Jesus. This is between you and him. Go and do that and let's meet up again in a week. And the next week we, we got together and I have like this list of questions that I'll normally ask somebody if they've indicated they're really interested in giving their lives to Jesus. I didn't get to ask any of those questions. This guy sat down and he said, man, something's different. He said, I've been reading the Bible all week. And right there, I was like, whoa, something is different. And he was like, I've, I've been reading about this Holy Spirit and I think the Holy Spirit's inside of me and that's really weird and I need you to tell me about that. And I was, I was reading about what a wife should be and my girlfriend didn't match up, so I broke up with her. And I was reading about uh, that I need to be ready to explain this faith that I have, to give an account for this faith that I have. Man, nobody in my football team has this faith. They're all gonna ask me and we got a lot of work to do. And five weeks later, he's captain of the football team. I mean, it's just this, this profound change. Not because I leaned into any of those spaces, because by God's grace, I got to sit down with him and tell him about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And man, the Holy Spirit just took it from there. 
He met Jesus and he was changed by Jesus. This is what's happening in our passage. Verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so these Jews who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on these Gentiles. They didn't have to become Jews first, even on these Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So the Spirit was poured down at that very moment. There were no classes to go through. There were no, no tests of their behavior. There, 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 was, there was no system to earn merit and righteousness from that point on. At that very moment, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them because they believed in Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And, and there are some radical things happening here. Like people, people are speaking in other tongues. There are signs and wonders. And both Ben and I have, have addressed this in Acts. This is not a normative thing that, that we're reading. Now, I'm not saying that it can't happen. I'm not, I'm, but the, the reason that it's happening is because these Jews, specifically Peter the apostle, had to witness, yes, Gentiles really can become a Christian without becoming Jews. This was to confirm the gospel's uh, entrance into the Gentile world. So there's this confirming thing. But just because that doesn't always happen doesn't mean the miracle of conversion is any less miraculous because hearts are being changed on the inside. So thinking about this briefly, I wanna, I wanna ask two questions of application. And the first is, is this the message that we're preaching? When we're, when we're walking through life and we're interacting with our, with our family members or neighbors, people you work with, whoever it is, is this the message that people know we're about? You know, are we, I, I mean, and, and I've been guilty of both ways and I'm assuming I'm not the only one. So sometimes I don't say enough. You know, people don't know that Jim's about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They may know that I'm a pastor, but from their interaction with me, they may not always know that that's my thing. And then other times they would, they would think, well, Jim's really about all these technical points of theology. That's what he's about. Not realizing I'm, I'm really about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is this the message that we're known for, that we're communicating the things that we say and the things that we do? And then let the Spirit do the rest. So a lot of you know I like to fish. I like to fish and hunt, but fishing, I grew up in a fishing family and we, got, we have just have had a lot of cool fishing opportunities. And one of the kinds of fishing that we'd do in the Keys, we would anchor in about 80 feet of water, crystal clear water, it used to be, now we've destroyed the state, but I digress. Uh, crystal clear water and you anchor and you let the, the bait just go with the, with the current. And when the fish hits, the line just starts going and you know there's a fish and you flip the bail and you're caught. And for me, that's, that's a really good picture of evangelism, a personal evangelism, because just think of the rod and the reel, the tool that you're using is relationships, real relationships. And, and the bait on the end of the line is the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as that happens, as we're talking about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus in the context of real relationships, all of a sudden, we're gonna have moments like this, this student where they start reading the Bible. They have a lot of questions. Their desires change. And we can see that they're caught, not by us, but by Jesus. And then instead of reeling a fish into a boat to die, we get to reel a person into the church to walk into the abundant life. Is this the message that we're proclaiming? And then secondly, do we believe that these words Peter is preaching, 
do we believe they're really for everyone? Everyone. I mean, Peter is preaching to people and dining with people and inviting people into fellowship with him that a month ago he would not even have let in his house. Wouldn't even let him in the front door. People who are so different from him, people who his culture said you should not associate with them. And now he's bringing them into the kingdom of God and in, at his dinner table. Is the same true of us? As we proclaim this message, are we really proclaiming it to, to every type of person? Or are we only really interacting with people who are comfortable to us? I can tell you, this was not comfortable to Peter. None of what's going on is comfortable to Peter. He didn't even get to speak the language that he wants to be speaking here. Do we really believe that it's for everyone? If we do, the people we have in our homes will look different. The people we have lunch with will look different. And in the context of these real relationships, we get to proclaim the great message of peace through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so I want you to see in the beginning of this, I said this is one of those great moments in, in these climaxes of redemptive history. Years ago, Angel and I were, we got to, when we lived in Europe, we got to be in, go to the Alps and we was on the top of one of these mountains and the clouds were low that day. So you couldn't see the bottom. All you could see were the major peaks, you know, as far as you could see sticking through because above the clouds, it was crystal clear. And so these peaks, if you, if you think about them, represent the major moments of redemptive history, the, you know, the, the virgin birth and the resurrection and the ascension. There are other moments, other peaks that would stick through the clouds, but this is one of them. The moment that the gospel goes to the world. And because everyone who believes is now let in is the reason that 99% of us can be let in. Unless you have Jewish heritage, you were the dirty pagan Gentile that Jesus is now saying can come into the kingdom. So if there's any deficiency or unwillingness for us to want this everyone to mean everyone, it's because we don't understand that we were everyone. So this passage radically changed the course of Christianity. It radically changed the early church. It changed Peter. It changed Paul. And my hope is that, that over the course of this week, we can think about this passage and go back and read it and meditate on it, pray through it, that it would radically change us as well. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this moment in redemptive history when this message goes to everyone. We thank you that we are everyone. And we pray that, that as we hone in on this message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for his treasured possession, for his true love, the church, that it would change us, that it would cause us to look more like him and out of an overflow of an appreciation for that message that the love that Jesus defined would be portrayed and displayed by us and that aroma that aroma of life through the death of your son would draw people in that we would in this local context be growing the kingdom not just bringing believers from different places but, but this would be a place where the kingdom is growing a kingdom outpost with power and they would really believe it's for everyone and that we would see that difference God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.